You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Jira, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are Andy. Hello. And we have two amazing guests, Andrea. Hi. And Dr. Lynette Russell. Hello. So before we get into our main topic, which I'm very excited about, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. Today's show topic, which is colonialism and imperialism in Star Trek, is a Patreon suggestion from Eve. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar per month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries. Visit patreon.com slash womenatwarp to find out more and support our show. Another way you can support our show is by going to our Tee Public merch store. We have new designs based on our banner art, as well as uh, some disco uh, allusions and our uh, upcoming Idic Podcast Festival. The Idic Podcast Festival is coming up July 17th and 18th. We have so many exciting shows that are joining us for a weekend long of programming highlighting diversity in the Star Trek podcast sphere. And we really hope that you can make it out. The event is free, and it will be streaming all weekend. More information is available on our website. So I want to start off by asking our guests to introduce themselves and just tell us a bit about how you first got involved with Star Trek. And I'll start with Andrea. Gwei, Ninda Louise, Andrea, Delayuli, Pictal Landing, Og McMoggy. Hi there, I'm Andrea. I am from the Pictou Landing Mi'kmaq Nation in uh, Mi'kma'ki, which is what is currently known as Nova Scotia. And I'm recording this from the traditional and unceded lands of the Algonquin Nation. I came to Trek in the 80s as a way to bond with my mom, watching Star Trek The Next Generation. This was something that uh, we shared together. And I got into the subsequent series uh, of Star Trek after TNG. And actually, I met Jera doing a CBC panel, a radio panel on Star Trek Discovery. So that's how I got pulled into this wonderful world of women at warp. And uh, Dr. Russell, or Lynette, um, if I'm okay to call you that, um, could I also get you to introduce yourself? Certainly. I'm Lynette Russell. I am a historian. I've studied mostly encounter histories and colonial histories, imperial histories. I am coming to you today from the unceded lands of Nam, now known as Melbourne, Australia. My connection to Star Trek is a lifelong one. I can't actually remember it not being part of my life. It was certainly part of my childhood. Then in the 70s, endless reruns of the original series, and I can still remember where I was the day I first saw the very first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. I was in, of all places, Guam doing fieldwork, and a bit like what our previous guest just said, it was very much something that we did to bond with our mother. She was a big Star Trek fan, and then, of course, I did the same with my kids. They didn't really thrill, weren't thrilled about the uh, Star Trek pajamas <laughs> and the occasional Star Trek, uh, you know, toys, but they've certainly grown up loving Star Trek as I did. That's great. And uh, like Andrea, I am also coming to us today from the uh, unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. 
And uh, I am originally from the unceded territory of the Comox people on the west coast of, of Canada. So, as mentioned, the topic today is uh, colonialism and imperialism in Star Trek. And there are two previous episodes that we're going to overlap with today. One of the episodes that we did fairly early on was on Indigenous representation in Star Trek. And I'm sure we will touch on that today. But if you really want to dive into, for example, Chakotay, you should go take a listen to that episode because we have a very big topic today. So those specific examples, we might not get to all of them. Another one that we did more recently was on ethics of the Prime Directive. And in that episode, we tried to keep some of these pieces a little bit aside for this episode because those topics are very, very much linked. And we did talk a little bit about the Prime Directive as a doctrine of non-interference. And today I think we'll get into how that connects to colonialism and imperialism. So let's start out by maybe clarifying just some of the terminology and, you know, feel free for anyone to jump in if you uh, want to elaborate or add to any of these pieces. But for anyone who might not have the background in what these terms mean, colonialism is, it's a practice of domination. According to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, it's a practice of domination, which involves the subjugation of one people to another. It involves a transfer of population and direct control over political, financial, and social arrangements. Imperialism is when a remote government oversees a region without necessarily having a noteworthy settlement. So those are kind of the dictionary definitions. But of course, this is heavily underpinned by capitalist and racist ideologies. We have, it it relies very much, both of these systems rely very much on a a construction of a racialized other and viewing Western European American ideas as as true and objective. So I'm sure we're going to get into more of how that fits into Star Trek in a moment. Andy, I think you wanted to add a bit about how this works, uh, particularly in U.S. history. Yeah, I mean, one thing that what I think of when I think of this idea of colonialism, imperialism, and American history specifically, is I always think of what Americans usually get taught in, you know, our high school classrooms as manifest destiny, this idea that, you know, the, the settlers were, like, supposed to go westward and, you know, civilize all of America, and it was basically there for us to take, and that it was not just, you know, something they wanted to do, it's something that they were, like, morally obligated to do. And when I was taught about this in high school, I was lucky in that I had a history teacher who taught us why that was terrible, but I think that a lot of Americans still hold on to this idea without even realizing it, and it's definitely a a part of kind of American exceptionalism and has kind of impact today, an idea that didn't really, like many things when it comes to this, it didn't really leave, it just morphed. So that's what I always think of when I think of this topic and specifically in America. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in uh, Canada and other parts of the world, uh, there was also a a principle, legal principle called terra nullius, which um, is also known as the doctrine of discovery. And it was basically international law that gave license to explorers to claim vacant land, I'm in quotation marks, in the name of their sovereign. Vacant was just anything that wasn't occupied by Christians, because the idea is those people were not 
people or were, you know, only had the potential to be people worth counting if they became Christians. There was also a refusal to accept land use uh, patterns as like valid form of of um, occupation of of the land because it wasn't the kind of property ownership that we saw in Europe. Um, and that, of course, was also super convenient because the Europeans wanted the land. And this this didn't just happen in the age of discovery um, in terms of, you know, settling places like the Americas and Australia, but also we see these same ideologies at play in things like the Crusades, this idea of like a, a civilizing mission. And uh, similarly, more recently in uh, some of the justifications for military intervention in in the Middle East and Afghanistan, this idea that, you know, we have an obligation to people that like need us to save them. And isn't it just so convenient that we have to save these people and they have so many delicious resources. And like, I think that's kind of what it goes back to when you were talking about how this is all underpinned by capitalism. This is all really like boils down to a lot of there's a lot of economic opportunity with with these sorts of ideas and justifications. Certainly from the Australian perspective, that doctrine of discovery in terra nullius is not only was it, you know, pervasive and resulted in dispossession and, you know, relocation of, of many people, it, it actually continues to this day to be thought of by vast numbers of the non-Indigenous population as being a, a legitimate way of thinking because there's a constant kind of refrain of, well, they didn't invent anything. They didn't, you know, they didn't build great structures. There were no fences, this kind of stuff, which um, of course fails to understand uh, Indigenous relationships to land. So, and, and, it, and it's interesting that you brought up Manifest Destiny because the uh, this whole notion of terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery, like Manifest Destiny is just, it's just that 2.0. It's Terra Nullius 2.0. Yep. And it always cracked me up a little bit when I heard uh, Americans talking about Manifest Destiny as being this like very American ideal. And I'm like, well, it's, you know, this is, this is kind of, this is kind of the colonizer playbook everywhere you go. Right. It's, it, it hasn't really changed like that. Those plays like have been, have been, we've seen the impacts of these all over the world. With the like, uh, Dr. Russell was saying the displacement of Indigenous peoples and like the uh, the forced relocation, the and the um, robbing of resources. Yeah, and I really like the point that that you made, um, Lynette, about the fact that this isn't just a historical thing. Um, I think that we need to really, you know, hammer that point home that the impacts of this, the ideologies persist to this day, as well as the impacts on on a lot of people. And I'm, I'm sure we will get to some examples of that. But uh, I think that's another misconception that, that people have is, you know, this is something, but my generation didn't participate in this. So yeah, I think that goes back to Andrea's point about manifest destiny, basically being the same idea in a different package is like, these ideas don't go away. They just, they just get renamed and rethought of and recontextualized without actually changing what it is. And there's no critical thinking on what, uh, like, there's no critical thinking taught in uh, school systems. There is a little bit more now with the younger generation, but there certainly wasn't when I was coming up. Even in university, this, like, critical thought about how this, uh, this notion of the doctrine of discovery or manifest destiny, how this colors 
public policy and the way that uh, that we uh, we view indigenous peoples and their resources and their impacts on like the lands and cultures around them. I think the, perhaps for me, it's best put by Patrick Wolfe, who described colonialism as not so much as an event, but a structure. Mm-hmm. All right. So we can return to these pieces, um, but I want to start to get into how we see this manifest in Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek manifest destiny. <laughs> and and one of the things I think that is important to note is that, I mean, at least in my opinion, Star Trek's origins are pretty inseparable from imperialist ideals. We have, you know, Gene Roddenberry pitched Star Trek as, quote, wagon train to the stars. Um, wagon train, as you can imagine, being a Western show, very much fell into that manifest destiny narrative and the, the idea that westward expansion was uh, right and good and that uh, there was a racialized other that was, you know, either a threat or fetishized. Similarly, we know Roddenberry was also super inspired by Horatio Hornblower, and Picard is very much modeled by after Horatio Hornblower, who is a British naval captain character. And um, in several of his novels, there are uh, stories of, of, you know, discovery and encounters with, with darker-skinned people that are portrayed in, in some pretty racist ways. Um, so even if the intent at the time was maybe like a little bit more on the progressive side on racism for in the 1960s, that these kind of underpinnings, I think, have made it very hard for Star Trek to, to break free and kind of imagine things in, in any kind of decolonized way. And I think that like, what you were saying about like we can't we can't separate the idea of the federation from imperialism and you and you absolutely cannot because uh even when you start from like original series and you move forward there's been minor adjustments to this american and certainly world like a uh, western worldview of what is right and what is good and we're all going to speak american english and this is going to be the way that everything is and we're the arbiters of um, what is ethical and what is right. Now that's that's something that's always struck me about about Star Trek and the Federation and getting uh, getting folks to to join this kind of like conglomerate of like nations and planets. It's it seems like for me the Federation is a lot like a commonwealth. So you have the founding nation, which in this this uh, example would be Earth. They disproportionately benefit from the resources and the access and whatever else might be might be profitable or provide a gain to the whole they disproportionately benefit from that but other like kind of like outlying planets or outlying outlying people they don't get the same benefit from that like it's not an, a truly egalitarian organization at all and it's it's the humans from earth who uh, who are calling every single one of the shots in uh, right from original series forward? So that's something that's that's always kind of cracked me up about that. That we're you know we're we're this united colors of Benetton bringing everybody together and like this is like all very oh everybody has the same rights, but we only have the same rights when it's convenient. And as soon as it gets difficult, <laughs> we're gonna bend the rules that we've set for ourselves. So I always found that a little bit. Uh, counterintuitive to what the uh, what the intent of the Federation is. 
I think you make a really good point that's worth highlighting even more, which is nine times out of ten when we're seeing Federation leadership, it is humans. That's very true. And then it's white guys mostly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it is very true. And it's, it's interesting because we know that the Vulcans, you know, in many ways, the impetus to start this all off, because obviously, you know, they connect with humans and that's the point at which we have first contact. And from there, we develop the, the, the United Federation of Planets. The reality is it's, it's, it's very heavily human-centric and humans are much more, I mean, they're much more dominant in the space than any other species. And I mean, at, to Jarrah's point, it's really heavily dominated by white humans and not only white humans, but white humans that are American and occasionally British. And it's really only in the last couple of series that we even see that challenged any, at all. So it really is heavily from one sort of moral perspective, which makes it really troublesome when we go back to Andrea's point about this is like this is supposed to be setting the moral framework for the entire universe, all from one perspective. And it's supposed to be a utopia. It's supposed to be <laughs> a, a vision of, of progress, which I mean, I guess is part of the problem because uh, part of this imperialist colonialist ideology is this idea that there is like one linear model of progress. The idea in the in Starfleet is, you know, when you develop warp technology, that's when you become quote unquote advanced. And we see some points in in Star Trek where that's challenged a little bit, but ultimately it's like technological. There's a benchmark that determines whether you're a a primitive culture or an advanced culture, and and that's another way that that manifests in Trek. And I think there's also the, uh, an, an interesting component there too, because you've got, we talked a little about capitalism and the role of capitalism, which clearly in the 1960s, 70s and 80s and ongoing is, is, is crucially important. But Star Trek absolutely rejects the idea that it is connected to capitalism. So it tries to decouple capitalism from imperialism or colonialism quite unsuccessfully, we'd have to say. <laughs> but it's but it's kind of an honourable attempt in lots of ways. The idea that there is a kind of unilineal evolution is it's rife throughout Star Trek. That's something that I don't think any of the any of the developers or writers have yet really managed to sort of deconstruct the idea that there is more than one way of being a human or being a being <laughs> or being advanced. You're quite right. They've connected it far too intimately with technology. And I think that there's a lot, like talking about like the capitalism point, like you have, it is capitalism, but it's just, it's just, we're just not talking about financials, but there is still trade. There are still things that have value. There's still like, if you, if you come from a nation with uh, dilithium, for example, like that's gonna, that's gonna improve your, your standard of life. More than it would be if you're agrarian or or elsewhere, right? Like, and there's in in some of the like the episodes that we're going to explore, like there are resources. Like, this is still very much a we're we're just making an economy out of something different. But we don't go to the store and buy the necessities of life. So we're going to tell you that this isn't capitalist, but it truly is. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I think that kind of goes to Star Trek's problems throughout the show of being idealistic and telling you that it's feminist, that it's, you know, anti-racist, all of these things, but then the writers being steeped 
in a certain kind of culture and they can't truly conceptualize what a non-capitalist society would even look like. So it creeps back in because they are limited by their society and their, you know, and it's, it's not like, it's, it's a completely understandable human thing. Like you can say that you're, you're trying to portray these ideals, but unless you can truly understand what you would need, like world building wise to show those ideas properly, it's going to just, creep in like it's kind of inevitable inevitable definitely and so this brings me to a question that we talked a bit about on our prime directive episode but i wanted to pose it to this group again which is the the prime directive and the whole idea of non-interference in the way that it's presented in star trek which seems like a a conscious you know well-intentioned attempt to try to prevent I guess, you know, the like cultural contamination of um, people that have achieved these advanced levels of technology. And it seems to be, you know, rooted in the desire to avoid repeating some some pretty crappy periods in Earth history. But does it actually work? And does the Federation actually live up to it? I don't think it does. Yeah, no and no. <laughs> All right, cool. We're done. <laughs> Everybody can go home. <laughs> I thought there was a really excellent line in your your program on the the Prime Directive that said that really the Prime Directive is only ever discussed in or invoked in order to to essentially be ignored, and um, that's I think that's very true. For me, one of the most powerful episodes is Who Watches the Watchers, where they mm. go to Mintaka, and I mean that's that's a case of a complete mess, but it's built into a unilineal evolutionary framework so that you can only develop in a certain direction, which is very much a Western direction, to the point where they even call them, I think they at one point call them a pre-Bronze Age civilization. I mean, they really are just saying they look just like us or like what our past Mm -hmm. used to look like. But the prime directive has always been anchored around technology. And that's the thing that's always bothered me about that is that it's taking it's taking this like very like america centric view of progress and overlaying that on every single society that they encounter and 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 making a value judgment on this is this this uh, society is in advance and i'm glad that you brought up the mintakins because the mintakins were actually quite advanced socially in a lot of ways yeah Absolutely. Like, particularly on the roles of women and how conflict was dealt with and how, like, uh, you know, histories were shared and skills were developed. Like, there was a lot of advancement there that you wouldn't have seen even at, like, the, the like the comparable warp kind of development period on Earth. So, like, it's always struck me as a bit wonky when you have warp drive as the... <laughs> as the we're gonna we're gonna like reach out to you or not and we we can't interfere in your journey to get to warp drive where like like Andy mm-hmm. was saying it's all like super linear like we have to we have to follow this one direction so that um that part of the prime directive has always kind of irked me a bit and uh like Dr. Russell was saying the prime directive falls apart as soon as you put it up against the tiniest bit of scrutiny or the tiniest bit of difficulty. So like whenever there's like a complicated thing involved, like we see an insurrection, like there's the uh, metaphasic 
uh, radiation that's supposed to have a lot of like medical applications. And this would be, you know, arguably very helpful to Federation planets and it would be an extremely valuable resource. But as soon as there's something that the Federation wants, the prime directive is essentially window dressing that goes, that just goes out the door. Like it's, it's not something that if mm-hmm. there's something that we really need, then these rules don't apply anymore. And in that case, I think of insurrection, one of the things that's super interesting is they think that the Baku are quote unquote primitive because they don't see them using technology. And I like that their kind of their assumption is challenged on that. Although I, it still kind of reinforces that, oh, no, 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 we are advanced because we figured out how to do all the things we just chose not to. So it's still kind of, you know, it doesn't totally break from that framework, but it does challenge the idea that like, just because you don't see people flying around in warp ships, they aren't quote unquote advanced. But uh, then yeah, you basically have the whole, you know, Starfleet Federation is just agreeing to relocate a population off their planet and destroy the environment of this planet for, you know, this, you know, pseudo capitalist gain. I also find the the Prime Directive just in concept to be extremely patronizing. Mm-hmm. Why do you get to make these decisions? You know, like, and and I find the Federation in general to be extremely patronizing. Uh, it's very much like we are the arbiters, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about way in the beginning, that there's, like, some sort of moral imperative to, like, bring our high-minded ideals to all of these people that are just, you know, not advanced enough to understand how amazing we are. Like, that whole vibe is very much there for the Federation, in my opinion. And with the Prime Director. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing I wanted to draw attention to was we see this repeatedly in the original series where an episode that we we didn't focus on in in our prep for today, but we talked a lot about in the Indigenous Representation episode is the paradise syndrome, um, but then also in a private little war, this idea of like these quote unquote primitive places as being like Eden mm-hmm. and that we can't go and pollute Eden, but it's like, it's very kind of like, it's patronizing. It it somehow you keep getting encountering these societies um, that are stuck in time and don't change. And then this idea is like, well, we can't come because we wouldn't be able to stop ourselves from messing it up, but there's no expectation you know, there's, it also implies that, you know, the the learning that will happen is all the learning of the, of in this linear progression of the people at the, the back end to like learn more to get caught up. And there's no appreciation that maybe the other people could learn something from these people. No, I think it's a perfect parallel to like not be, it's, it's something that we see right now in um, current government policymaking. And uh, this is happening in the Americas as well as like Australia and New Zealand, where you don't have enough of like a, enough of a recognition that that traditional knowledge is valuable, that 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 that's mm-hmm. knowledge of the land yeah. and the interconnectedness of everything in it is just as valuable when it comes to uh, various kind of like policy and regulatory decision making. Or more, maybe more valuable. <laughs> yeah, more valuable. Certainly in Australia, our knowledge is becoming increasingly incorporated into land management strategies. You know, anybody who knows anything about Australia and our horrendous fire seasons um, knows mm-hmm. that you know we we are now really trying to get traditional knowledge back into the to the management of the land so that we can in fact prevent those gigantic fires. 
Uh, but while, while you were talking just a moment ago, I, I started to think about that, I think, really awful episode, The Apple, which oh, yeah. is actually quite hard to rewatch. <laughs> Not just the, you know, sort of the technical aspects of it or the, you know, it's, it's kind of, it looks like the set is literally shaking. But there's something about that particular episode where you know that they're t- totally ignoring the Prime Directive. But it's, it, it's entirely justified in terms of we're going to make your lives so much better. You're going to, you know, you're going to be more like us. You're going to find love, for example. You'll have little people, children you don't need to know. We'll, you'll find out. So there's this kind of <laughs> utterly, it's truly bizarre. But it is, again, the Garden of Eden. It's the paradise, mm-hmm. you know, despite che- Chekhov telling him that paradise and the Garden of Eden is just outside Moscow which is, you know, perhaps the only amusing moment in that pretty awful episode. <laughs> the red skin was what got yeah. me. I was trying to Oof. work out. And the yeah. strange eye makeup. Yeah, I had I had a really difficult time uh, as well, Lynette, watching The Apple and A Private Little War only because there were people who were clearly supposed to be Indigenous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. White actors wearing Oompa Loompa makeup and having this, like, really taking on everything that's stereotypical and tropey about, like, indigenous mysticism. And you have to, uh, like, oh, we have, like, medicine women and and these witches are going to come and get you. And, And I just found that that was really interesting because when you take when it, it kind of shows the bias of the writers at the time. And I, like, I, I think you still see this in modern media. It's not just the original series that fell prey to this is that, you know, this was this way of life was so savage and so wrong. And, you know, if you're not living a happy life by my terms, then I need to bring you along the way. Like I need to show you what happiness is and I need to show you what success is. It was just this like, this insane like colonial like viewpoint on the world that uh, that kind of like made me scream a little like when I was rewatching both of those episodes. Yeah, it's, it's I think very tied up in the um, the secular humanism of Star Trek, which we've also talked about in our religion episodes. This idea that like it's our uh, responsibility to disabuse you of your superstitions. I mean, you're quite right. I mean, there's many a time when you know Kirk will say something to the effect of "We've outgrown." your, you know, gods and, and and the like. But there's something that's quite radical when you think about it. That's the 1960s. That's actually mm-hmm. an extraordinarily radical, particularly from the Americans' perspective. Australia's much less, much more of a secular nation. And we've, mm-hmm. we you know, always had that kind. We've had at least two prime ministers who have been absolutely av- avowed atheists, which is not something you would have in, for example, I've ever seen in America. But but to think that Star Trek in the 1960s was essentially saying, well, religion is dead. Um, we don't listen to mm-hmm. religion. We've got a new, in a sense, a new religion, which is technology. Um, we've got a new belief system, which is entirely based around our capacity to create these technical advances. And then again, they run into the problem that they run into every single time, which is they can't conceptualize having no religion and so you see religion throughout star trek exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) that's the ironic component of it isn't it (laughs) yeah and i think it it comes back to again the idea that of, of the i guess just that that patronizing attitude of of that 
this is advanced and this is not advanced. So I think, yeah, it absolutely was um, pretty revolutionary for for the time. But I, I think in from a modern viewpoint has the uh, unfortunate downside of, of reinforcing those, uh, that imperialism. And another thing I wanted to mention about that was, oh, right, about the apple, that in his book, Star Trek and History Racing Toward a White Future, Daniel Leonard Bernardi has a lot of examples arguing that Trek reinforces an idea that evolution and quote-unquote development equal whiteness, because you often see these societies like you see in the apple where they're in this kind of orange makeup, but also, you know, you get the code of honor in TNG and some of these other um, societies. And then you all, all of your omnipotent beings are all white, including in Voyager when you see the Q continuum and they're all yeah, white people in, in two, two episodes. <laughs> so yeah, so it reinforces that idea that progress also equals assimilation. So maybe on another theme, um, I wanted to ask about the Federation versus the Borg. And because uh, this was something that you talked a bit about in your research, uh, Lynette, and the idea of, of you know, do you, do you have to actually stick nanoprobes in someone to assimilate them? <laughs> See, I think the Borg and the Federation are, are not at all different. <laughs> I think they're both colonial entities, colonizing entities. I think the Borg is just doing it in a slightly more malevolent manner. It's very difficult when you think that the Federation is out there to bring in every planet and, and, and you know, essentially make them just like us, which is precisely what the Borg is doing. They're physically making them just like themselves, and they are absolutely colonizers. I think the, di- the difference with the Borg is that they're honest about it. <laughs> they tell you that they're going to add their, your uh, technological and biological distinctiveness to their own. Like they, they just say, yeah, we're colonizing you. That's a brilliant way of putting it. Absolutely. It's, they're actually self-aware. <laughs> yeah, they're honest. Like the disclaimer is right there. Whereas the Federation is like, oh, we're going to give you all this peace. But by the way, we're only going to do it by the rules that we set out and you need to follow them. We don't care about your traditions before this point. I will say in the Federation's defense that at least there's much more of a choice there. Like, you actually have to apply to become a part of the Federation. And, like, we see a couple of episodes, especially in TNG, where they're, like, evaluating people mm-hmm. to be to join. So there is actually a world where, you know, they don't join the Federation, whereas the Borg are pretty uh, pretty not into that. <laughs> of course, in, in Journey's End, we, we see a, a group of, you know, Native Americans who choose not to join the Federation. In fact, ally themselves with the Cardassians in order to prevent being essentially assimilated, what well, being moved for a start, but also being colonized or assimilated in the way that the Federation does. Yeah, we definitely need to talk about Journey's End and also the Maquis in general. Um, one point that I, I just want to raise from Journey's End, because Andrew and I watched this a couple weeks ago, was in that episode, they actually basically say to the people who, by the way, fled Earth to find their own world, partly to get away from this shit. And then just find themselves caught up in it all again and are sort of almost kind of saved by Wesley and an advanced, another advanced <laughs> white guy. So many problems with that. But in that episode, they actually um, say, you know, to the people, you understand that, that by staying here, you will give up your citizenship, right. which to me was really fascinating because in most situations that we would have on Earth, 
even if your territory changed, you would still like retain the right to say you could return to Federation space and vote. So the idea that you, they literally, the Federation was not going to grant them anything, even if they returned, would was pretty harsh to me. I thought that was fascinating because they, they quite literally were saying, you're on your own, mm-hmm. which was, you know, when I rewatched it, I hadn't actually remembered quite just how def- definite that was. You will be on your own. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like the inverse of enfranchisement. In mm-hmm. Like, so if you wanted to do anything outside of the prescribed list of activities approved by Indian affairs, then you had to give up your, indi- mm-hmm. your indigenousness. So like when I, when we were watching journeys End, I was thinking about that. I was like, Oh, this is kind of like the opposite of that. in in a lot of ways, but in this, in the same sense, like, yeah, the, the circumstances are slightly different and the rights are slightly different, but it's still an external party making decisions about, uh, about your future. Um, Andy, you wanted to talk about the Maquis. I just put them on there because I feel like they were trying to do some sort of indigenous allegory, not even really an allegory because they literally use indigenous people. And I just find it fascinating that this is one of the few times that we see the Federation being challenged in this way and they are not treated completely like villains but they are definitely treated like antagonists and we are supposed to see them that way but it's murky at best and then also i just find them interesting because they're one of the few groups that kind of goes across series and show up in ds9 show up in voyager you know started in tng and the kinds of characters that end up being in the maquif i also find interesting because you though you know the first one that comes to mind for me is Ro Laren, who is already, you know, as a Bajoran, kind of a part of Star Trek's exploration of, like, occupied people. So I feel like the Maquis become very fascinating in that way. And I was really curious as to other people's thoughts on this. It's always, it's always kind of grinded my gears that it was, the Maquis were always painted as terrorists. Because, like, when you see their various portrayals in different episodes throughout the different series... That's always the thing that comes back and it and reminds me of um, how indigenous peoples who push back on imperial and colonizer rule are are painted the same way. Like I like let's think about the water defenders at Standing Rock or the um like anybody who's pushing back on natural resource development are are painted as terrorists and they're going to be taking something away from a greater whole and they're they're endangering your safety they're endangering your good life so i i always found it interesting that there was so many parallels to to how indigenous people are portrayed as like antagonizers and dangerous and if you're not subjugated and following these these colonial rules that um that you're a terrorist and it's interesting in the episode ds9 episode the cause where the, they certainly the Maquis are constantly referred to as terrorists and a terrorist organisation, and you know, destabilising, you know, the the Federation. But what I found was really interesting is that there's a particular scene where they're heading out into sort of the wilderness, the Badlands, and it's it's actually the Irish 
Miles O'Brien, who who starts to question whether or not they're such a bad group of people just perhaps trying to make things better for themselves. And I thought that's a really interesting choice, being Irish and having a sort of, you know, clearly meant to be an Irish character. Uh, and we know that the Irish have been colonised over and over again. So that's a, that to me was a, a, an interesting moment of, of self-reflection. Mm-hmm. I think it also makes sense given we know that character has a background with the Cardassians. Yeah. But I love the exchange where I think it's Bashir in that scene who says something like, well, you know, I of course I, I'm sympathetic, but you know, you I, I don't want to excuse terrorism. And uh, O'Brien says, I wouldn't say that in front of Major Kira if yeah. I were you. So they draw attention to the fact that the Federation has decided that those tactics were fine on the context in the context of Bajor against the Cardassians, but are not fine in this other context. Exactly. When I was first thinking about this topic in general, I was thinking about Bashir and how one of the first things he says when he gets on DS9 is he calls it the frontier. Mm-hmm. And Kira's reaction to that. <laughs> and it's always kind of shaped how I thought of Bashir. And one of the, the arcs that I enjoy with Bashir is like he learns somewhat from a lot of different people, but especially from O'Brien and especially mm-hmm. from Kira. He's one he's actually a character that shows significant personal development, which is fascinating. Yeah, a really good character arc, because the first season of DS9, I was like, this fucker. I I really was not digging him. And then, like, I, I think that taking characters like that and having them grow and learn can be super powerful. So, I mean, that's a good segue into, I actually want to say something nice about Jonathan Archer. So. What? I know. <laughs> I mean, not... It over- okay, so I guess with some caveats. So I was reaching <laughs> out to Twitter to ask about what Enterprise episodes we should consider for this discussion, because Enterprise obviously being one of the later produced shows, but being one of the ones that was set earlier in the time frame, the supposedly, you know, the first uh, warp mission um, involving humans. And one of the ones that that got suggested a lot, um, including by, I remember Ben Rowe suggested it was Shadows of Pajam, which is one on a proxy war, which is very interesting between the Vulcans and the Andorians. But then, of course, we digressed a bit into just talking about Archer and his challenges embracing difference. And um, there was a really, really great comment from from Claire from Isolinear Chick on Twitter who said, there is a lot of Earth read American exceptionalism in Archer's attitude towards the Vulcans in Broken Bow and other early eps, which feels like a direct byproduct of imperialism. I think with the t- 2001 timeframe, it's supposed to be rugged individualism, but it doesn't age well. I think maturing out of that as much as he does is Archer's defining characteristic as a captain. Picard's wise, Kirk's the cowboy, etc. Well, Archer is the middle-aged white guy learning how to get comfortable with the new perspectives and not knowing everything. <laughs> so accurate. But I will say that my favorite Archer moment is in North Star, which is one of the episodes that we watched, uh, which is a Wild West-themed episode, where uh, they find out that this group of humans on this planet are oppressing the aliens that had originally abducted them from Earth. And they're about to escape, but Archer goes like, sorry... I just need to do one more thing. And the one more thing is he just really needs to punch the oppressor in the face. <laughs> I mean, it's not necessarily, you know, the uh, 
ideal way out of that situation, but it felt very much like Kirk punching a Nazi, and I was very there for it at that point. Yeah, I do agree. That was also my favorite part of that episode. <laughs> there was a couple of things about North Star that, that stuck out to me as like an Indigenous person watching this, especially an Indigenous person that also has like a settler background, like my father's family is Dutch. There was very much this message coming from Archer saying, yes, you were subjugated, you were tortured, but we really need you to get over it if you're Mm -hmm. ever going to come back to Earth. And that is a consistent message that is delivered by settlers to Indigenous people about having to get over things, especially Mm -hmm. like in this current context that we're living in right now. There's this um, kind of like this global ignorance coming from a lot of folks that, oh, this was X many years ago. Why can't you get over it? Mm-hmm. It's a common refrain here as well, of course. And, you know, the married to that in the Australian context is, you know, anyone who doesn't look particularly Indigenous is, has their authenticity and, and, and validity and identity questioned at levels that are, frankly, soul-destroying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think North Star, unfortunately, kind of tries to flip things on its head in a way that ends up reinforcing some of the original problems. In addition to also not explaining how this entire town stayed in a Wild <laughs> West tropes for like 300 years. But yeah, I mean, the the proxy wars thing is something we see show up again and again in Star Trek and and in dealt with in different ways, um, often to critique Vietnam in the original series. And then we get a lot of the um, Middle Eastern uh, imperialism in uh, Enterprise, which we will not go into in detail, but Desert Crossing is a good example if you want to uh, watch a a cringy episode on that uh, in that area. Another thing that we didn't really uh, talk a lot about in our uh, preparation for this episode is Voyager, but I did want to shout out and I will share in the links in the show notes. A really cool recent doctoral dissertation by Lee McKagan on imperial narratives in Voyager. And she says that basically European imperialism and these ideologies are written into the narrative through the reliance on castaway and adventure narratives that serve to establish the right of the explorer in the way of American settler colonialism. The Voyager becomes the domestic space home against the wilds of the frontier of the Delta Quadrant, and they are over and over again encountering these quote-unquote lost races these like never before encountered aliens um that and in that way that uh that kind of frame is just constantly reproduced i think that's a, it's a superb piece of work i mean made me want to go back and do another phd i have to tell you <laughs> <laughs> it's just delicious i i particularly like the idea of voyager as the sort of the castaway so they can't really be an imperial force they can't really be a colonizing force because there's just them and they're lost you know they they're, they're they're disconnected mm-hmm. from from the Commonwealth, as it were. But I particularly like, in an Australian context, um, we have a lot of castaway stories in Australia too. And you get the, you know, the, the lone sailor who ends up living for, you know, 32 years with an Indigenous group or, you know, woman who's rescued. There's lots of white women who get rescued and live for many years with Indigenous communities along the coastlines and it, these it struck me that this is a little bit like voyager voyager is try, tries to to do in a sense to to practice what the federation is 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 pushing for but it's also very difficult for them because they're completely disconnected they're lost 
So everything they do is designed to get them back to the Commonwealth, to the Federation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, actually, one of the examples she talks about is Course Oblivion. And there's another episode called Demon, I believe, where basically there's this class Y toxic planet that clones the entire crew. Spoilers for Voyager, <laughs> Andy, sorry. And there is an episode where they're basically because they're clones of the entire crew, they also have the same drives and their drive is to return to Earth. So they are they're They've left their planet. They're on clone Voyager. They're heading towards Earth. But because they've made this decision, the whole thing falls apart and is destroyed. And she cites that as an example of, of kind of resistance to that narrative, because it's, it's just, you know, kind of the epic failure of that imperial uh, colonial attempt. It's also a very sad episode. What? A sad Star Trek episode? No. <laughs> I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but that particular one has a sad ending. <laughs> yes. So as we as we sort of come up uh, to the conclusion, I, I did want to throw out there, given that Star Trek is so enmeshed in these narratives, because when I, I started, I was going like, is it even possible to think about what Star Trek would be like if it was decolonized or anti-imperial? and I know, Andy, you had some thoughts on like how Discovery has treated this. Yeah, I found the uh, some of the first uh, the first season of Discovery was really interesting to me, to me in this way because you had some of the Klingons, especially like overtly saying that the Federation was imperialist and fighting back on that, and like in, in, in interesting ways. At one point, one of the one of the Klingons like scoffs about the Universal Translator and like. It's like, it's just another way for you to, to impose your culture on us. And I, I wish that they had gone further with that idea, but it's also one of the few times I've seen that idea in Star Trek. You see it somewhat in DS9. Quark kind of has a similar vibe to this in that he's like, y'all Federation people think you're really, really special and cool, but actually you're not that great. And like successfully making that point occasionally. And even Mud brought this up as like the Federation encroaching onto to space and like putting everyone under its control and kind of squeezing everybody who doesn't want to be under Federation control out. And now Mud just doesn't want it because he's a criminal. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I still thought it was an interesting idea that I I hadn't seen explored very much outside of some some cool DS9 scenes. And so it made me curious to see if Discovery was going to, you know, dive into that more. But unfortunately, I think it went mostly unrealized. It's funny because like, when I started watching Discovery, that was one of the things that stuck out to me the most. Yeah. Is that you had untranslated Klingon, like mm-hmm. people were just speaking their traditional language. And that's how you started. And a note that people hated that. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, yeah. I thought it was great. I loved it too. And I, my, my feeling is that there was some amazing moments of, to present a, a decolonized Star Trek in Discovery. Discovery almost in the first, certainly the first few episodes to me was sort of addressing some of the critique. Absolutely. It was fascinating. I wish they had done more Same. with it and it kind of fell away. With the Klingon storyline, it kind of fell away, even when the Klingons were still a part of the story. But it was definitely that Klingon pushback that was actually super fair. Mm. 
<laughs> and I, I loved it. And it was a thread that I wish they had continued. I will say I also think Picard started off with a lot of promise on that, but I think ultimately kind of failed, um, at least in season one. It started off with the promise of a real, you know, strong critique of the Federation and how they behaved in this in the midst of a refugee crisis and in by criminalizing synthetic life. And then it kind of ends up, you know, because they had way too many plot lines going on and needed to resolve them, it kind of ends up falling back into, you know, good guy, bad guy tropes and and certain aliens being bad, um, even though they started off with this, you know, I, I what I think was a pretty powerful critique of the Federation as, as an imperialist institution. But what what would anti-imperialist Star Trek even look like if we got to, you know, create a new series? Is it possible? Could we do it? What 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 should it contain? More indigenous writers. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly non-white yeah. writers. Start there. Yeah, Lee McKagan says that in terms of of some of the I guess principles that we would need to look at abandoning the idea of the hero journey, and um, she draws a lot on Ursula K. Le Guin's idea of the carrier bag theory <laughs> of fiction. The idea being that. The first tool that people developed was would have been a carrier bag for food rather than a weapon, so that we should be telling stories of of ongoingness and relationships between all living things versus about progress. So it's about process, not progress, and that it's stories about life, not stories about killing. And having like a federated power structure is not out of step with like indigenous confederacy as well. Like you have, mm-hmm. you would have, you know, group decision making, consensus building, and the the respect of the difference of everybody who came to the table. So you could still have a federation in name for sure, but its decision making and the power balance would be radically different. Yeah, I think it has to be like Star Trek has some of the nuggets there, like the idea of the reason we are going out is to encounter new and diverse life forms and to learn things, but they just don't demonstrate the learning enough and the commitment to being willing to admit that you're wrong as part of learning. Yes, allowing people to make mistakes occasionally or admit their mistakes is mm-hmm. really important and it's not it's not evident. I mean there's a certain there's a sort of uh, confidence and a self-congratulatory confidence that's built in to to the leadership of the Federation. And not a lot of self-reflection or, or self-questioning. More Bashir arts. That's Bashir, yeah, <laughs> more Bashir asks. <laughs> I think that Discovery starts to get to a little bit of the the actual human journey of learning more than any of the other series did. Like, this is one of the things that when Jara and I did that panel, one of the reasons I liked Discovery is because it wasn't always about the, oh, we're going to always find the diplomatic solution and we're always going to be right and we're always going to be this. There was darkness, there was growth, there was questioning, and and there was a lot of uh, back and forth before you actually came to a resolution on something. So like that's that's something I really liked about Discovery and how, well, and this is how, this is a great example of how current like social norms will will create the lens through which these shows are built. And there's a there's a there's a very conscious attempt at diversity in in discovery which is very welcome I have to say. Yeah, and I think also the way that they explore those relationships between people that aren't always just about love mm-hmm. interests. So even though Michael does have I think a, a type of hero's journey, it's definitely complicated and and not infallible. 
but we also see so many different types of relationships and how the the crew functions as a community and part of a larger intergalactic community. Cool. So we should probably wrap things up, but I did want to ask if anyone had any final thoughts. This was a really great topic, and I really appreciated our guests. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, absolute pleasure to be able to dip back into Star Trek and think about it again and think about those Indigenous perspectives that you know underpin all of my work and just make watching something like Star Trek so very interesting. Uh, thank you so much for having me. When I, uh, when I first started watching TNG as a little girl, I never would have thought in a million years that I would be able to marry my interest with, of Star Trek with my current career <laughs> and, be, <laughs> and be able to talk about those two things and how they intersect. So this has been wonderful. I do have a call to action for settlers from the Women at Warp crew. So listeners who are settlers who maybe are, are new to this topic or, you know, or not, because this is ongoing work that we have to do. I I didn't want to let this opportunity go by without having a bit of a call to action, especially in light of the fact that there has been some really devastating um, confirmation in recent weeks that we have seen in in Canada, although we know this is is not an issue limited to Canada, with the confirmation of of mass graves of children at former residential schools. And uh, so the first thing that I wanted to ask listeners to do is uh, it's a, a call out from Dr. Keisha Supernet, who is a Métis archaeologist at the University of Alberta, who says, non-Indigenous folks do not ask Indigenous friends and colleagues for our time and energy. Do not ask us what, we, what you can do. Do not burden us with your guilt. Amplify our voices. Commit to the work. Call for the truth. Deeply listen to survivors. And take action. So I think that's really important because people are going through a lot. And as people who have benefited from these systems of oppression, we need to take it upon ourselves to educate ourselves on the history of colonial oppression and genocide, including residential schools, boarding schools, missions. Seek out work by Indigenous creators. There are so many books, there are websites, there are videos, and also important to learn about how we have benefited in terms of of land, in terms of access to resources, in terms of our political rights, in terms of of stereotypes. There are, are just many, many ways. Another thing I really want to encourage folks to do is to demand accountability from government and re- religious institutions. It, we may have a federal election coming up sometime soon, so not going to say how to vote, but if if we don't show that we will vote on these issues, then there isn't an incentive for the government to change. And the government and previous governments are in court fighting residential school survivors, fighting Indigenous children who are fighting for for access to healthcare. It is shameful and it needs to stop, but we need to be able to actually like put our our money and our votes and our efforts where our mouths are on these issues and not just vote out of of self-interest. And then look at other areas where you can make a change. So your family, your community, the workplace. And you can also support through donations and through volunteering without centering your own feelings or your own presence without asking for credit. You can support, for example, land defenders organizations, uh, residential school survivors societies um, in Canada, the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, reconciliation education initiatives. There are many options. We will put some of them in the show notes for this episode. So please take some time and uh, do some work and uh, hopefully uh, we will be able to make things a little bit better together.
So that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you so, so much again to Andrea and Lynette for joining us. Andrea, where can people find you on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Cats California. And you can also find me on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash Cats California. And Lynette? You can find me on Twitter at Lynette Russell. And you can find me at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia at the Global Encounters Program. And Andy? Yeah, easiest place to find me is Twitter at First Time Trek. And I'm Jara, and you can find me at my finally migrated blog, trekkiefeminist.com. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Jara Penguin. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more Roddenberry podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.